First things first, please scan the QR code. Those in the virtual audience, please scan the QR code. This is a poll that we'll be taking before the debate and then again after the debate. So please take a moment to do that while I'm introducing folks. This will we'll finish this off as soon as we start the debate. I'm Steve Hellman, Managing Partner of Mobility Impact Partners. And welcome back to Impact Debates for those of you who have been to some of our events in the past. This is the first time that we've done this in person, so we're looking forward to doing it old school. Um, mobility Impact Partners is a coalition of stakeholders in the mobility ecosystem, automotive, OEMs, tier one suppliers, electric utilities, telecoms, finance, insurance, oil and gas, fleets, freight, logistics, and um, cities and municipalities that have um, an an important stake in the evolution of the mobility ecosystem, and we basically work on common challenges, find solutions, invest in those solutions, and then bring those solutions back into the operating businesses of our partners. We've teamed up with Comotion, John, thank you, with um, Bain, with Credit Suisse, with Edison Electric Institute, UC Davis Policy Institute, and others to create today's debate. The resolution for the debate is car ownership will peak within the next decade. Arguing pro, on my left, is that car ownership will peak is Mark Godfordson from Bain. During his tenure at Bain, he's worked on most of the global, worked with most of the global OEMs and with dozens of suppliers in the automotive and mobility space. He's led the Americas and the global automotive and mobility practice and is a leader in the strategy and performance improvement practices. Arguing con is David Keith. David is a professor of system dynamics group at MIT Sloan School of Management, where he studies consumer behavior and corporate strategy in the automotive industry. Before we get started, a couple other housekeeping issues. First of all, the session is being recorded and registered guests will receive a link to the recording. It's also available, it will also be available on the Impact Debates website along with our other debates, our other recordings from other debates. The debate is on the record and members of the media are free to use the material, but in that regard, please note importantly that the debaters are here today in their individual capacities, not as representatives of their organizations or companies. Um, due to time constraints, there won't be question or answer for the audience during the debate. If you have any questions or want to speak to either of the debaters afterwards, we will make our way out and we can chat with you there. The debate follows a very structured format. There will be six-minute introductions um, with some slides from both of the debaters, followed by three-minute rebuttals, after which there will be a series of three questions that I will be asking each of them with their opportunity to respond and to respond to each other. Um, uh, arguing pro, um, will Mark will go first in each of the segments and David will be following in each of the segments. So if you want to kick it off, we're good to go. I can't tell. 
guys. Okay, now can you hear me? Okay, good. Well, as, uh, as Steve mentioned, I'm gonna be taking the position which is optimistic on the idea that because of mobility, particularly autonomous mobility, that we will, in the next decade or so, achieve a point where we have peak car ownership. We've actually lived in a world that's been quite stable for a very long time in terms of how many vehicles people own and, uh, and if you look at this chart here, you can see that car and truck registrations, this going back now all the way to 1976, they have steadily trended at about 1.6 times the number of 15 to 64 year olds. That's the, the prime driving ages. There are some cycles that swing around that a little bit. It goes down a little bit when there's a recession, but it comes right back as soon as the economy turns around. That can lead to fairly large swings in new vehicle sales and also scrappage rates for short periods of time, but the ownership is really steady. The argument that I'm going to be making here today is that that curve is not going to continue on that 98% R-squared kind of a relationship as we go into the future and as we start to see some disruptions in this industry. A big part of that reason is that we believe that autonomous driving is going to catch on. That it'll catch on and then it will, there will be fairly high penetration of it relatively quickly and I'll talk a little bit about how much that penetration is, but we believe that the technology will come to pass, that ultimately customers will accept it, that there will be a regulatory landscape that is friendly to that, and most importantly, the economics will make it very compelling for people to shed some of their vehicles. This chart shows you how ride hail penetration took off. You can see on the left of the uh, chart on the left where UberX launched and then how quickly both the number of trips and the percentage of, of, uh, of, of ride hailing that actually occurred through those apps. So, you know, New York City used to be a, uh, you know, a city of most of the street was filled with yellow cabs and today 80% of the four higher vehicle trips in New York City are, are Uber trips. Obviously that dropped dramatically in 2020 when we shut down for COVID, but has been, uh, been rapidly scaling back up to where it was before COVID. So it's obviously a te technology that people like and, uh, and, and they have adopted it very, very quickly as you know. One of the things about uh, shared autonomous electric vehicle fleets is that it actually solves many car ownership frustrations. Maybe it doesn't solve all the traffic problems, but some of the headaches of owning a vehicle get solved by you don't have to own the vehicle. If it's as convenient as owning your own vehicle, you'd love to make that transition. But most compelling about this whole thing is that right now, personal vehicles on average in the United States are utilized about 4% of the time. So the real opportunity here is to have vehicles that are utilized much higher percentage of the time. That makes ride hailing a little bit competitive, but if you can take that driver out, it really changes the dynamic. So a robo-taxi 
is much, much lower cost than ride hailing because most of the cost of ride hailing is actually the cost of the driver. You compare that to the cost of owning a vehicle, and if you are basically owning two or three vehicles, there's a real incentive for you to shed one of those vehicles because it could put $3,000 a year into your pocket each year. Those economics for the middle market of the population, particularly in urban areas, becomes really quite compelling at that point in time. The other thing that I'll just note here is that if you look at this chart here, what it basically shows is in urban, semi-urban, suburban, semi-rural and rural areas, what percentage of the people own how many vehicles. So you can see in urban areas about 15 to 20 percent of the people today don't own a vehicle and then you have people who own one car, two car, three cars. People tend to own more vehicles as you get more rural. But I just make a comparison here. If you have really, really convenient options that are not owning your own car, take for example Tokyo where they have 0.4 cars per household relative to in urban areas in the US of about 1.6 cars per household. But, in, but Tokyo has, of course, a, uh, an infrastructure for public transportation that is far much further advanced than anything we have in the US. If you go to the fifth largest city in Japan, that number becomes 1.1 cars per household. And just as a personal example, my children grew up in, uh, in a household that had anywhere from three to seven cars at any given point in time. My oldest son has been living in Tokyo for four years. When he lived in the U.S., he and his wife had two cars, but in the nine years he's been in Tokyo, he has never owned a vehicle because the public transportation is so convenient. So if you have convenience, the need to own a car drops dramatically. Now I'll turn it over to David to give the other side of the issue. Hang on, I think David is your microphone. Uh, yep, yep, I think I'm good. on. That's, that's for you to keep. David. Uh, take the clicker. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. So I'm going to take the counter argument to this that peak car is a long way away. Um, I believe this truly, not because it's my personal preference and not because it's what I think will be good for cities, but as someone who studies consumer behavior in this market, this is the only conclusion you can draw given what we observe in the market today. The global automotive market is continuing to grow steadily. There's going to be 23% more people on the planet in the next you know, 20 to 30 years out to 2050. So aggregate demand in terms of the number of people we need to move is growing steadily. In addition, there are billions of people who would love to have as much auto mobility as we do in the US. You know, we have about 800 cars per thousand people. That number is very much lower in other parts of the world. Um, and there are places like Barcelona and Tokyo that we hear a lot about, but there's also large swathes of Africa and South America and other places that are still ripe for um, increased auto mobility. The cars we're producing today are incredibly durable. Right? They have an average age, average lifetime, I should say, of about 16 years, and it's going up. Right? We're getting ever better at building durable, high-quality cars. The cars that we're selling today are probably going to still be on the road in 2040. So we're already baking in an incredible amount of car fleet into the future. And so this graph on the right here shows a simulation based on the age profile 
of the US automotive fleet, if you introduced 100% electric vehicles in new vehicle sales starting today, or 100% no new vehicle sales at all, it would take you 20 years for that new technology to take over 90% of the fleet. So we've already baked in multiple decades worth of inertia into this system. Even more so, the value of car ownership transcends the use value of getting from A to B. So some research that I've done on this valuing car ownership, so not looking at the cost, which we spend, tend to spend a lot of time on, but the value, we find that the value of car ownership on average in the US is about 11,000 a year, but of that, less than half of it is the use value of getting from A to B, and more than half of it is non-use value. Right? It's schedule flexibility, it's options, it's status. Right? Whether there's a hurricane coming or I want to drive to grandma's house for Thanksgiving, if I have a car in the driveway, I have the option of doing so. And I like to think that it's not that those cars are sitting idle 96% of the time, it's that 96% of the time they're there ready to be driven at a moment's notice. And when you ask people why it is that they might be reluctant to give up their car, the top three stand out. Control over my own schedule, flexibility, certainty, and reliability. These are feelings, right? It's the security blanket that I get from owning my own, my own car, being in my own space, and it's very difficult to replicate those same qualities in mobility services. I believe that automated vehicles will will be disruptive, but I expect that they're going to be at least as disruptive to public transit as they will be to private car ownership. Um, I believe that autonomy or automation, as I would prefer to call it, will be decades away. So John Kraftchik here, the ex-CEO of Waymo, he's not even clear that it's even possible to build level five cars. And for that reason, I believe it's unlikely that an AV will ever be able to replace all the bundle of trips that I take in my car today. Not just the one, two, and three mile trips around town, but the 200 mile drive to go to a, you know, skiing on the weekend or to visit family. Um, and it's for this reason that I believe that AVs are likely to be a complement to rather than a substitute for car, private car ownership. Back to you, your response, three minutes. So there are many things that, uh, that David has just mentioned that I agree with, including his perspective on how people value cars. Where I think we differ is that my perspective is not that people will get rid of their primary car, that that primary car will fill those basic needs, but that it will be economically advantageous to them for them to share the, to, to potentially shed the second or the third or more likely the third and the fourth vehicle that people own today, that those rides will just become, I can get that, I can catch a robo-taxi just as conveniently and I don't need that extra car. They'll find that they're not actually using it and therefore can get rid of it. I'd say that's the main argument I would make. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the question is uh, of extents, I think. It's, it's whether you go, uh, how, how many cars is, is any given household willing to give up, I think. Um, still, if you looked at my family or, or possibly your own families out there, um, look at each other and see who's going to be giving up their own car first. Um, 
and uh, then we'll see how many cars you know, we're actually willing to give up. So let's move on. Um, let's turn to vehicle miles traveled, or VMT as people like to refer to it. The actual amount of driving seems to be like a much more impactful way of thinking about traffic, emissions, and other externalities of vehicles. Um, let's hear from each of you on what's the future of VMT. Yeah, this topic is one that we're probably going to agree on more, which is that vehicle miles traveled may actually increase. This is a chart showing for urban and rural areas. The, uh, the top part of the bar is urban areas. You can see that rural passenger vehicle miles traveled have been really quite flat for quite a while, but urban uh, miles traveled have been, been increasing, with the exception, again, of COVID and then the bounce back from COVID. But if you, if you assume that the population is going to con continue to grow and that vehicle miles traveled are probably going to follow a pattern that they have in the past, we could be by 2050, we could be as much as 2.7 to 3.6 trillion miles in vehicle miles traveled. Now that, of course, becomes a problem when you think about it for congestion in urban areas. What this chart shows is, this is from a study uh, that, uh, that, that came out of Germany that just modeled driver behavior and if vehicles didn't make the same mistakes that, uh, that, drive, that human drivers typically make. And the truth is that as the number of autonomous vehicles that don't make those mistakes increases, the flow on the, in, in the traffic actually increases. So you actually have much more capacity on the lanes. So autonomous vehicles ultimately have the impact of reducing congestion because people aren't rubbernecking, the kind of braking that we do as we're coming up to vehicles. and going through traffic lights, knowing when you can go through the yellow light and so on and so forth, those kind of mistakes that we make as human beings. Autonomous vehicles, when they don't make those mistakes, will actually increase the capacity of the roads. That's the good news. The bad news is that if you think about autonomous vehicles, there's a very good chance that an autonomous vehicle would replace short-haul air and rail travel. For example, today you can't, it's very hard to be productive. If I'm flying from Dallas to Houston, I have to go to the airport, I have to go through the TSA line, I have to then stand around waiting to board, I can't turn on my computer until the plane gets in the air. The plane gets in the air, I just get hooked up, ten, yeah, after we get to 10,000 feet, 10 minutes after I get connected, I have to disconnect and put my computer away, and then I have to catch a car to somewhere. It's very, very unproductive, but if a vehicle could pick me up in Dallas and drive me directly to Houston, and do it for the same price, I can be productive the entire way. So it's likely that short-haul flying comes down, which means vehicle mile travel go up. David already talked about public transport. If that's disrupted by autonomous vehicles, that increases the vehicle miles traveled. As the costs come down, assuming there's some elasticity, you'd expect more travel. Carpooling would decrease it, but there's some question about whether you would actually see a lot of carpooling. And of course, government regulations depend on what the regulations are. Some of the things like uh, deadhead regulations, limiting AV mileage while robotaxis don't have a passenger would decrease vehicle miles traveled. But regulations subsidizing and promoting robotaxis would actually increase it. 
The net of it, I think, is probably an increase. No, hang on to that. I just need that. that. I'm always handing off the wrong thing. Thank you. So not only am I in violent agreement with Mark about that VMT is going to go up, I'm going to reject the idea that pooling is going to help us in this regard, which was possibly the only down arrow that Mark had on that last slide. So it's probably been a few years since most of us had uh, seriously contemplated a pooled ride on Uber and Lyft. The services have been shut down in, in many cities for quite a while. But many of us would have been familiar with this type of choice put in front of us. Um, you know, I, I'm a keen student of this when I, when I teach at MIT. When I ask my MBA students how many of you use pooled rides, three quarters at least of people put their hand up and say yes. When I ask my faculty colleagues how many people use pooled rides, no hands at all, possibly one, and almost always that one person said, I did it once, I didn't mean to, and never again. Right? And what we reveal from this, and I've done it in much more scientific ways as well, is to note that a pooled ride is inherently less convenient than an individual ride. Right? By definition, you're picking up other people and or dropping them off along the way. It is not the most efficient way to get from A to B. The main appeal of pooling is that pooling can be cheaper because we're sharing the cost of that trip. And typically, you'll see even from these, from these actual uh, cost estimates from a few years ago, the, a saving of about 40% on the, on the trip cost. So it is quite significant. Um, when you dig into this, a little deeper, the reality is that people who can pay with money, either because they have a high income or because they're paying with someone else's money, they'll take an individual ride. People who can't pay with money will pay with their time and they'll take a pooled ride. Right? So I don't think people want to pool. Part two is that if the cost of driving falls, as Mark outlined, is, is certainly one of the hopes of of autonomous and shared, shared vehicles. If the cost of driving falls, so too does the economic incentive to pull, right? Because that individual trip is just not as expensive as it used to be. And a 40% saving off a lower price is lower than it would have been previously. But step three is even then, even if people did choose to pull, which I don't think they are going to at scale, but even if they did, I don't think we're going to see the benefits on the roadway that we might like to think. Right? And induced demand uh, is the explanation here. So on the right-hand side here, you'll see an image that comes from Uber's marketing material around Uber Pool. And I'm not picking on Uber in particular. This is just a nice example. So in the top here, with the black and gray cars, they have an example of 27 people spread out in ones and twos in these cars. And they're arguing that Uber pool with twos and threes and fours in those cars, fewer cars, more space on the roadway, higher travel speeds, everyone's better off. That's fine, except what happens next, right? I look out the window and say, wow, travel times are better than they used to be. The traffic's getting better. At the margin, someone comes off public transit and decides to drive their car. The reality is these gaps aren't going to remain open on the roadway. They're going to get filled up with more cars. We're going to suck people off public transit. We may well trigger 
the transit death spiral. And in this way, you'll see that pooling is really a different version of adding another lane to a highway. And that's something that we've known for 100 years isn't a permanent cure for traffic congestion. Do you want to respond? I, I, I think we've made some pretty good arguments there. I, I suspect for this audience, I know there's a lot of people in public transit. It's a, it's a pretty dark view <laughs> of the future of public transit. And, uh, but unfortunately, I think that you know, it really comes down to this. It comes down to economics and convenience, which are the two major reasons why people end up taking the kinds of trips that they do. And as, those, as the economics of being in a vehicle and the convenience um, increases, you will see more demand coming from that, from a vehicle miles traveled. I, I, think, I think that's the net of it. Let's move on. Um, so let's turn to Pete Carr. Let's turn to the headline of the debate. Um, are we destined to then pile, because we've talked about two different vectors here in terms of personal behavior and then vehicle miles traveled. What's the net result? Does that car keep going up, to, up and to the right, or is there some hope that we will not be living under a pile of increasingly large number of automobiles? So David made made the point earlier about the number of people in uh, in the world, and uh, it's actually a very good point. And you'll see, as I talk about this uh, briefly, that that is, if you look at things globally. I'm going to have to agree that peak car is probably further out. But for the U.S., I think it's closer in. Let me just share a couple of things with you. This is, uh, at, at Bain & Company, we, we do a lot of trying to forecast what automotive demand will be in different countries. And you can see the, uh, the gray here is what our forecast range has been going back to 1998 for what vehicle sales, new vehicle sales would be in Brazil. And you can see that for about 20 years, our, our forecast and model was very, very accurate. But in about 2016, the model suddenly broke. It didn't work anymore. We were selling many less vehicles than our economic model would suggest. What was not included in that model was actually the growth of ride hailing. Now, if you've ever been in Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, and been in some of the traffic jams down there. And of course, you have to understand that in Brazil, almost all of the vehicles are in the urban areas. And there's just a huge amount of congestion. And being able to have ride hailing increase people's productivity dramatically. And it immediately actually started, we started to see people buying less vehicles, or in other words, shedding vehicles. And I talked about that idea of shedding vehicles earlier. And I think this is one of the best indications that when you have that convenience and you have that productivity factor coming in and being built in, that people will make the decision to not buy that next car. The other thing that of course is going to be happening is that today an average vehicle, by the time it is scrapped, travels about 200,000 miles. It's more based on age than it is on miles. Now there's, as it gets older, more maintenance is required and so on and so forth. Some of the rubber gaskets and seals just get old. But the average mileage of a vehicle that is scrapped today is about 200,000. On the other hand, where we have ride hailing situations, New York City cabs 
limos and so on and so forth generally run for about 500,000 miles before they are retired from the, the fleet. As you know, the uh, electric vehicles are likely to have even less maintenance problems, last longer, and as those become fleets, they'll be able to run for as, up to about a million miles. So you've got a combination here of people shedding cars, and even though we're going to be traveling more miles, the individual vehicles will travel more miles before they are scrapped, which also leads to less need for them. Therefore, we have kind of come up with some forecasts, and I've, I've built the world perspective here, but you can see, if you look at NAFTA, what we've basically said is that by 2030, that's eight years from now, by the way, that we would actually start to see about 11% of, of, uh, of the vehicles out there being shared autonomous electric vehicles. That's eight years out from now. And then growing to be about 39% by 2040. The implication of that, using the assumptions that I just built in, is that the total number of vehicles sold would drop from about 21 million um, in 2025, which would be sort of the peak, to about 18 million in 2040. Europe, on the other hand, would be flat. And the reason for that is that still Eastern Europe is developing and there is more demand for, mobi for automotive mobility of the kind we see in, uh, in Western countries growing in Eastern Europe. And so you, so you see there's a decrease in demand in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe it makes Europe overall flat. But in APAC and the rest of the world, there's lots of people that are still their incomes are growing and they are going to have a need for mobility and even though we'll see shared autonomous electric vehicles we do think that there will be growth there so the net picture there is peak car in Europe and uh, and the US in the next 10 years but not so much in uh, in Asia and develop in the developing economies you can see my dotted red line there is if there were not shared autonomous vehicles how many vehicles would be sold and the net is what we think there, there will be. In other words, it will bring the number of vehicles down. Is the other way around? Oh, I, oh yeah. Sorry. Thanks. So I, I really like Mark's forecasts breaking out into, into different regions. Uh, definitely more detail than I'm going to go into. What I am going to do is show you some, some simulations. These are, these are different uh, visions of the future in the United States. Um, uh, and from, from these scenarios, I've come to the conclusion that I, I think you have to make fairly heroic assumptions to believe that even in the US that peak car is near from an industry perspective, that the rate of new vehicle sales is going to plateau out. It's certainly possible, but we can reveal what those conditions are. So here, in this base scenario, this is a counterfactual, right? This is Imagine that everyone continues to drive privately owned vehicles forever. And, and on the left, we see the stock of vehicles in the fleet. And on the right, we see the rate of new vehicle sales. So here, the size of the fleet continues to grow out to 2060, up to nearly 350 million, purely because of that population growth. If everyone keeps driving the same mileage and owning the same number of cars. Imagine then that half the population decides to adopt shared mobility, mobility as a service, um, such that those shared vehicles are being operated for 10 hours a day. So a 5x increase in the number of uh, miles being served per vehicle 
what we see here is that the size of the fleet drops by 40% because for 50% of the population we only need one-fifth the number of cars now to serve them. Interestingly, the rate of, of new vehicle sales on the right-hand side is unchanged because those vehicles that are being driven 10 hours a day, assuming that they still have the same useful life, are being worn out five times faster because they're being driven five times more. So we sell exactly the same number of vehicles because we're churning through that fleet much more quickly. We're using it more intensively. Um, imagine then the three revolutions. So we add pooling in on top of this. Now we need even fewer vehicles because not only are those vehicles driving 10 hours a day, but they're also got two passengers per vehicle instead of one. So here we see the size of the fleet goes down further and the rate of new vehicles sales does as well. So it, it, it wavers, but it's pretty much constant at around the numbers we've got today out, out to 2050, 2060. Um, the cost of, if the cost of driving is to fall and we assume that that leads to an increase in how much driving we do, right? the opposite happens because we have more miles that we need to serve. So we're going to be churning through those vehicles, but we still need more vehicles because we're doing a lot more driving in aggregate. And so then we actually see demand from the industry for vehicle manufacturing on the right goes up. Um, Mark just touched on the life of the vehicle. So this could really be important. Here I, I simulate out to 400,000 miles, but if that was a, a million miles, right, with some of those more optimistic projections, each vehicle is going to serve a lot more mobility. It can drive for 10 hours a day, but it can also do that for 10 years. And so those, we would then expect that the size of the, of the industry would contract and, and the sort of the worst case for the industry would be all of those things happening, which is, which is pooling, increased vehicle utilization, and an increase in the average vehicle lifetime. In that case, you know, and, and adding some of that, those additional parameters on, I could see new vehicle volumes falling down into the low teens, right? Millions of vehicles per year being sold in the United States. That's not personally what I expect to happen, but in terms of thinking through industry impacts, I'd say these are the, these are the sort of signposts we should be looking out for as we think about what the industry impacts could be. So, David, I, I, I love your simulations, and I, I, I actually, as you run through those simulations with changing the variables, it's not dissimilar from the, the, the simulations that we would run. So it comes down to what do you believe? Do you believe that the vehicles will travel further? Will you, do you believe that people will adopt this and thereby shed vehicles? And I guess that's the argument that I'm making, that, you, that they will shed ve that there will be some vehicle shedding going on, and that we will see, um, we will see a, a, a peak that rises as his peak does to 25 million, but then drop off into the, into the high teens by, uh, by 2040. That would, be, that, that would be, if I were to pull up and shoot, that's where I would pull up and shoot today. But I, I do think that some of the points that you make are to be seen. Right. Um, and uh, you know, the evidence that I would put, I, I've shown some international examples, Brazil and Tokyo, Japan, 
you know, the fact that uh, when you get into rural areas, they, uh, Japan actually, it's not really a cultural thing that's driving the fewer vehicles in Japan, it's convenience. Convenience drives consumers everywhere, and when that convenience is there, it will change their behavior, and that's, I think that's the main argument that I'm making. Any of that? No, that's okay. Well, you brought up impacts. Like, um, so let's talk about that for a minute. Um, when we put all these pieces together, what are both the economic and the societal impacts? For the investors in the room, who are, the, who are gonna be the winners and losers? And that we have plenty of public policy folks as well. Um, what are the futures of the roads and cities? So, we are in the midst of multiple transitions here right now. We have talked about shared autonomous and electric vehicles. And there's, there's kind of a fundamental thing we haven't talked about. A, a vehicle does not have to be electric to be autonomous. And so we have argued that they will be electric because of the things that are happening in the electric world. And that's going to impact all kinds of things. Obviously, in the automotive value chain, there's potentially massive implications here. For example, with auto OEMs, there's a real chance that if there's a lot of shared mobility, you don't, you're, not, you're ordering an Uber or you're ordering a Lyft or you're ordering whoever is offering that vehicle. You're not ordering a GM vehicle. Certainly when I made my trip from the airport to here today, I ordered an Uber. I happen to drive in a Hyundai, but, uh, but that's, <laughs> that's what I got. Um, I didn't know when I pressed the button that that's what I was going to get, nor was I given the option of choosing what brand of vehicle I had. So auto OEMs potentially have a huge stake in this from a branding perspective. It's obviously going to affect the suppliers, dealerships. I mean, we could talk all day about what could happen with dealerships as things go to, uh, to fleets and so on. But interestingly enough, this has much, much broader societal impacts and impacts in other um, areas as well. Given the time, I'm not going to try and give an example of every one here, but I, you can see here that I have, uh, I have highlighted technology um, and telecoms, logistics and transportation, chemicals, airlines, retail, insurance, financial services, oil and gas, utilities, all of these are going to be heavily impacted by the transitions that we're making right now. And let me just tell you a story about one that's not even on the page. And that is that not, not long ago we were having a conversation with the executives at Coca-Cola. We wanted to use with them an example of how an industry could be disrupted because the automotive industry is being heavily disrupted. And we used the example of the automotive industry just to say you need to be thinking about how you could be disrupted in your industry. We hadn't even thought about how this would disrupt them, to be honest with you. But one of the execs there said, you know, 50% of our sales come through convenience stores with a gas station in front of them. Fully 50% of Coca-Cola's sales come from a place where you go to fill up your car with gas. When those vehicles become electric, when vehicles that are being used are, uh, are suddenly being used as, uh, as fleets and consumers aren't walking into convenience stores, 50% of Coca-Cola's business is at risk. So 
there are massive, massive implications that we can talk about here throughout the economy. In fact, the transitions that are coming, I would argue, may be as big as the transition from the horse and carriage to the horseless carriage, the, uh, the uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. But of course, there are even broader societal impacts, climate, imp climate impacts as, em as emissions improve as we are using electric vehicles that might be using more and more um, renewable resources that should help. That will somewhat be offset by the increase in vehicle miles traveled. Fewer new cars and cars per household will reduce raw materials consumption. And then some, some interesting societal impacts. Again, I mentioned that with autonomous vehicles not making the mistakes that humans make, we should be able to reduce human accidents by up to 90%. It should be that we can provide greater access to mobility for children, older, and differently abled members of the population. And of course, there's always the issue of cyber um, security and cyber attacks as we, uh, as we come and depend much, much more on communication between car to car, car to city, and so on and so forth. So again, we could talk about this, I think, all day, but, but it's huge, it's huge. You get it eventually, right? <laughs> I'll never get it. I'll never get it. <clears throat> so, if there's one thing that I want you to take away from this hour, is that if we make cars that are better, cleaner, cheaper, and safer, or any combination of those, we should expect that there's going to be more driving. Right? And they will be, because if they're not, we won't adopt them in the first place. So the only thing that can happen, all else being equal, is that cars get better and we get more driving. And as Mark has very well said, there's all sorts of implications for that. There's plenty of others. Rather than living in an expensive inner city condo, I might choose to move out to the suburbs and have a big house with a swimming pool or something because I can just hit the button and have the car drive me to work. I think there's, there's really interesting questions once we move from a model of selling cars to consumers to fleet management, um, questions for the automakers about how they remain relevant, questions about who is actually going to own the vehicle. Right? Today, ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft prefer to not be involved in the ownership of, they like the asset light model. There's certainly very interesting opportunities for financing and securitization and other things of, of these assets on wheels as we move forward. Um, I think a really critical takeaway here in terms of as we think about value creation is that the customer relation, relationship is going to be key. Right? Mark just gave the example of taking an Uber. Right? Uber was the app he pulled up. They were the people who interacted with him. They were the company that took money off his credit card. Right? Hyundai, all they got to do was have Mark sit in the back of their car for, for 15 minutes. They probably won't see a dime from from that transaction. And, and the risk, I think, for, for the traditional automotive industry is that a new layer is created that disintermediates car companies from their customers, right? which is the digital layer. And so uh, the challenge for all companies, whether they're traditional automakers or whether they're tech companies, um, is how do I try and capture that 
customer relationship and how do I provide digital services that the customer's willing to pay for. And where I'd like to end is a quote that I use regularly from, from Robin Chase, who was the, the co-founder of Zipcar, which is infrastructure is destiny, right? If we have cities full of roads, we should not be surprised when people choose to drive on them. Uh, and regularly, I think earlier today, I heard a question if I had, you know, the, the panelists were asked, what would they do if they had fiat power, right, to implement change that they would like to see, right? If you want less driving in cities, then dig up some roads, right? It's pretty simple. We've seen great examples of this during the pandemic where I live in, in Cambridge, we started, Cambridge, Massachusetts, we started using the roadway for restaurant space so people could sit outside. It, the city was very much more vibrant, right? And we used this valuable real estate resource for good. So our willingness to build the cities that we want, I believe is what's gonna dictate how we choose to move. And we shouldn't expect that innovation on the mobility side can overcome you know, the, the amount of space that we're providing to vehicles in our cities. So I'll stop there. Um. Thank you, David. Um, we've got a minute. Um, what, we, what would you tell these people in the, in, in the audience to do to, to actually improve the outcomes here rather than, uh, and, and avoid some of the negative outcomes? You guys have been a lot of gloom and doom around <laughs> um, additional vehicle miles traveled and lots more cars and, and so forth. So how can we improve the positive outcomes? You know, David is, is right. If you, if you limit the number of roads, you, change, you, will, have, you will by definition change people's behavior. Um, but, but autonomy will still declutter those, those roads. People want to move around. People want to do these things. They're always going to want to do it. But there is a certain amount of uncertainty about how this is all going to play out. We were working with a, uh, with a real estate company. It was, we were basically asking the question, how should we be making bets in the future? And the question was, are people all going to be moving out to the suburbs, as David suggested, or are they all going to move into the city? And so we actually took a poll of all the senior executives. We did a little survey with them. And exactly half of the executives said, it's going to happen. Everybody's going to migrate into the city because that's where things are happening. And exactly half said, no, people are going to move out into the suburbs because it's, you, you can now be productive on your commute. And so then we asked them another question, where do you live? And there was a one-to-one -one correlation. The people in the suburbs all thought everybody was going to move to the suburbs, and the people who lived in the city all believed that everybody was going to move in the city. And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know where they're going to move. And so we've got to start setting up signposts on these kinds of questions to say, as this thing begins to develop, what patterns do we see and start building our investment based on how we see consumers actually begin to move. Um, before, David, you, if you have a last word, I just want to point out that we have the QR code back up on the screen again. Please use it. Um, um, and those of you in the virtual audience, please use it again um, so that we can compare the responses to questions from the beginning to the end. Um, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, what I would say is in practice, what I would propose if we want less driving is to price 
our road, price access to roadways. In reality, we already do price every road in the world today. In the absence of a fiscal price, we pay with our time and we drive up to the point at which we're unwilling to spend any more of our own time driving. And in fact, there's very robust data that shows across time and across geographies that people will commute for about one hour a day. Um, so, you know, I've caused you know, much consternation for people before proposing this because you know, politicians don't want to bring in new taxes and, and things like that. But I would argue that, as I said, we're already paying. And if we actually bring in robust paid pricing to access roads, it gives us more flexibility. In, in situations, for example, if we're concerned about uh, inequities and lower income and groups and disadvantage, at least we have some currency in the system that we can redistribute when we do that such that everyone is better off, right? People who are willing to pay can move through cities quickly um, and, and people who can't pay will be compensated so that they're, they're no worse off. Um, and I think ultimately it comes down to the difference between the, the, the visions we've outlined today is, is policy, I would argue, and from my perspective, and, and willingness to, to take on some of those ambitious policy challenges. I'm not optimistic that we have the the uh, what it takes to, to get us there, but um, I think that's what we need. It's interesting, today we have fuel taxes, and as the fleet shifts to electric vehicles, those will go away, and they'll have to be replaced with something, so it gives an interesting opportunity to design how we tax to pay for the infrastructure in the future. Thank you both. Um, I really appreciate both of you guys taking the time and taking some hits from each other today. Um, also, John, who was, in, uh, who was here a minute ago, John and the team from CoMotion, thank you for making this happen. Thanks also to Bain, to Credit Suisse, Edison Electric Institute, UC, Policy, UC Davis Policy Institute, and the American Debate League with whom we um, um, created the program. We appreciate support for trying to generate healthy debate around issues affecting all of the way that we are all of, uh, affecting the way that all of us live, work, and play. Um, if any of you guys have feedback on the debate or any ideas for future debates, um, please um, share them with us. Um, we'll let you know about our upcoming programs. You can find them on the Impact Debate website, um, where you'll also be able to find, like I said, the recording for today's, today's debate. So thanks again for everybody joining us today. Um, we should have the results of the poll, hopefully. Um, it's flashed up on the screen, but we understand that the mayor is showing up, so we're going to exit this way, and if any folks have questions that they want to discuss with us, happy to, happy to chat with you outside. Thanks again.